KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. California's extreme climate spurs wildfires. About 140,000 acres have already burned this year, compared to only about 40,000 during the same period last year. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A critical look at the city's progress on the Climate Action Plan. The city did pass at the time in 2015 a very bold and and forward-thinking climate action plan. It patted itself on the back for a couple of years, and now here we are trying to play catch-up with all of the action that didn't happen. How black and brown communities are experiencing dangerous heat. And we talk about Shohei Otani's impact on Major League Baseball. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Tens of thousands of acres are burning in California today. The largest wildfire, the Beckworth Complex fire in Plumas and Lassen counties, has surpassed 90,000 acres and containment is at 46%. Crews faced extreme fire behavior this weekend near the town of Doyle when the fire created its own lightning. Investigators believe all the fires that make up the Beckworth complex were started by lightning. Joining me now to talk about California's wildfires is Los Angeles Times staff writer Haley Smith. Haley, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So the fire season this year is already rivaling what we saw in 2020. What did you find in your reporting about how California has been impacted by fires in 2021? Right. So um, 2020 was actually the worst wildfire season on record in California with about 4 million acres burned. But what the latest data indicates is that this year is already outpacing last year. So between January 1st and July 11th of this year, there have been about 5,000 fires compared to about 4,300 during the same period last year. Similarly, about 140,000 acres have already burned this year compared to only about 40,000 during the same period last year. So this doesn't necessarily mean that this year will be worse than last year overall, but what it does tell us is that more fires are igniting earlier in the year and growing larger. Haley, I mentioned the Beckworth Complex fire at more than 90,000 acres, but there's also a nearly 10,000 acre fire burning near Yosemite National Park. What can you tell us about the river fire? Mm hmm. So the river fire started on Sunday afternoon, and within just a few hours, it had swelled to 2,500 acres. Today, less than 48 hours after igniting, it's already at about 9,500 acres. And this behavior is similar to what we're seeing with fires across the state, which are swelling in size fairly rapidly because of the extreme dryness of the state's vegetation, um, which is essentially acting as you know, food or, or fuel for these flames. 
wildfires seem like they've really been an unfortunate part of life in, in much of the state for some time now. But uh, what are fire experts saying about the impacts climate change is having on the size and scope of these fires? Well, one expert I spoke to put it very succinctly. Um, he said climate change's fingerprints are all over these fires. And what he meant is that a lot of the extreme weather that we're seeing in the state you know, including these sort of record smashing heat waves and the ongoing and worsening drought are significantly contributing to this year's fire behavior. Um, The level of vegetation dryness across the state is at record lows for this calendar date. And it's at levels that aren't typically seen until late August or even early September. So the heat and the dryness are essentially acting like an oven, turning so much of California's hillsides and grasslands and forests into essentially uh, tinder for fire that can be ignited really easily and burn very intensely. And so how is this climate then affecting California firefighters' approach to fighting these massive wildfires? Yeah, as you can imagine, it makes them harder to fight Um, when the fires are spreading so quickly and behaving so erratically. It can be really hard to find the right place to anchor operations and build out a perimeter, especially if embers are, you know, jumping containment lines and igniting spot fires and things like that. Um, The crews are also battling extremely high temperatures. Um, We've had record-setting temperatures across the state in recent weeks. Um, There was a lot of coverage of that sort of record-breaking heat dome that simmered over the Pacific Northwest last month. So it's just really hot, hard conditions for these firefighters. And then on top of that, California's terrain is often really steep and rocky, so they're having to hike up to these fires or attack them from the air. So they have a lot of challenges to deal with. Yeah, we also know that human activity causes the majority of fires in California. What have you found in your reporting about the cause of some of the state's current wildfires? Yeah, so that is true. And interestingly, some of the current biggest fires burning right now have been ignited by lightning, um, which is something that's becoming more and more common. But I've also heard from several experts about how population growth in California is, um, you know, bringing people closer and deeper into the terrain and, and creating more occasions where it's easy for a fire to ignite. So um, the human factor is definitely a big part of it. What made 2020's fire season so extreme was actually this freak lightning storm that ignited um, and set off several fires. We haven't seen that happen this year, but if it does, that's probably the thing that'll put us on par with last year. And the largest fires are creating their own extreme weather conditions. Describe what's happening there. I know, right? So (laughs) one effect of this extreme dry vegetation is that fires are burning really hot and growing really quickly. And not only are they, you know, crossing roads and bodies of water, but they're also strong enough to create their own sort of internal weather conditions, like really strong winds, tornadoes, huge plumes of smoke. Um, The Sugar Fire, which is part of that Beckworth complex you mentioned, generated a massive cloud that actually created its own lightning. And then the tenant fire near the Oregon border actually created its own fire whirl or, uh, you know, fire tornadoes. So we are seeing some really extreme fire behavior from these fires. Wow. I mean, how are these extreme weather conditions, along with the already high temperatures, affecting firefighters' ability to fight these fires? 
yeah, it just makes it more challenging for them. And, and every time, you know, they seem like they get a hold of a fire or they lay down containment lines, um, they can't necessarily trust them because they can, you know, embers can jump those lines or the winds can whip up a spot fire a couple feet or miles away. So it's just really, really difficult. And, and firefighters have said that fighting fire here is pretty much unlike anywhere else in the world. I've been speaking with Los Angeles Times staff writer Haley Smith. Haley, thank you very much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. San Diego has ambitious goals in the fight against climate change, but it's not doing a good job of tracking its progress toward reaching them. That's one of the findings of an audit of the city's ambitious 2015 Climate Action Plan. San Diego is in the process of revising the six-year-old climate plan. City officials say a revised version of the plan will be more specific and include cost estimates of climate action programs. And joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. Why was there an audit of the city's climate action plan? Well, the job of the city auditor is to find areas that pose a risk to the city, not just things like waste, fraud, and abuse, but also just general performance issues with city operations. Where are they not doing a good job and how could they be doing a better job? The Climate Action Plan is legally enforceable, meaning that if the city does not meet the greenhouse gas reduction targets in the plan, it can be sued and then forced into compliance with the climate plan by a judge and by the courts. So that legal risk, not to mention just the the risks that climate change itself poses to the city with sea level rise, you know, extreme weather events, flooding, etc. I think those are all areas that made the climate action plan a a really valuable uh, area for a performance audit. Well, at the time the Climate Action Plan was made in 2015, San Diego really was in the vanguard of American cities' response to climate change. But the audit has found some big shortcomings in how that plan has been used. Can you tell us about some of the findings? There's one line in the audit report that I think encapsulates a lot of what uh, this is all about, which is plans are only as good as their implementation. So yes, the city did pass at the time in 2015 a very bold and and forward-thinking climate action plan. It patted itself on the back for a couple of years, and now here we are trying to play catch-up with all of the action that didn't happen since 2015. So there are two big-picture findings in the audit. The first is that the city departments lack accountability and oversight on their work to actually implement the goals of the Climate Action Plan. They're not really keeping track of their progress toward those goals, nor are they regularly updating key decision makers like the mayor and the city council, even the public, on their progress toward those goals. So as an example, the city is behind on reducing energy consumption in city-owned buildings. It's behind on increasing the share of commuters who choose transit or biking or walking uh, to work instead of driving a car by themselves. The recommendation to fix this shortcoming is that every city department that is responsible for the climate action plan is supposed to come up with an annual work plan, and those work plans then have to be approved by the city's sustainability department. And uh, those departments also are supposed to designate a staffer who is the point person for climate action plan implementation, whereas currently that sort of responsibility and accountability isn't all that clear. The second finding in the audit is that the city just needs to do better fiscal planning. There's still no official estimate for how much the Climate Action Plan will cost to implement. 
And so we can't track our progress and make sure that the city is spending what it needs to be without that estimate and without sort of timelines and, and roadmaps to implementation. And isn't also one of the suggestions that the city involve all city departments involved? How are they going to do that? Well, the city for a while was hosting what it called sustainability roundtable meetings, and this was meant to be a forum for cross-departmental dialogue on how to achieve the climate action plan goals. So the the sustainability department is the main department that oversees the climate action plan. But the actual implementation happens across multiple departments, including public utilities, parks and recreation, transportation and stormwater, planning, etc. The list goes on, really, across almost the entire city. So the audit report found that these meetings, uh, the sustainability roundtable meetings, could be more frequent. Only one meeting was held in 2019, and one meeting was held in 2020. So uh, they're not happening often enough. And they also found found that there could be more of a two-way dialogue. So they found that the the meetings that were held were often just presentations from the sustainability department to other departments, rather than a chance for those departments to present to sustainability their climate action-related initiatives and what they have going on, and for them to actually be held accountable for those goals. And what's been the city council's response to these points in the audit? Well, they've been largely supportive of the findings and the recommendations. All the recommendations were agreed upon by city staff, and they agreed to uh, implement the recommendations. Often, the case is that when an audit comes to the full city council, there was a lot more discussion that happened at the committee level. So this particular audit went to the audit committee and the environment committee. A lot of the discussion happened there already, and the discussion at the full council was sort of abridged. But basically, what the city council wants to know is, what are the budget decisions that we need to be making each year in order to meet our climate action plan goals? We still don't have an estimate, as I mentioned, for the implementation of the plan. And the city council also said we need to make sure that sustainability, the sustainability department, has the staff that it needs to actually achieve these new mandates of of more oversight and accountability. So all of these things are very important decisions that the city council needs to have input on. And finally, what's the reaction of an environmental organizations to this audit. The environmental groups, I think, are generally glad that the audit was done, and they're glad that they've brought more attention to this. They've, they've been saying a lot of the exact same things that were in the audit report uh, for many years now. Um, but I don't think that they're generally happy with the city's response, specifically the timelines. So, for example, transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in San Diego. That's just people driving their cars and trucks. Uh, but And the city was supposed to come up with a mobility action plan that details how they will transition away from car dependence and toward more sustainable transportation options like biking, walking, and public transit. So this mobility action plan is still three years away. And that's that will be then by the time it's presented nearly a decade after the climate action plan was adopted. So I think in a way, this audit has just sort of made it even clearer and more um, noticeable how far the city, how far behind the city is. And the advocates just aren't really seeing the urgency from city officials that they feel is necessary. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. My pleasure, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. As the summer heats up in San Diego, not all city neighborhoods are experiencing the same hot temperatures. A new study from UC San Diego finds that low-income neighborhoods and communities with higher Black, Hispanic, and Asian populations experience significantly more summer heat, sometimes to a dangerous extent. The disparity is baked into urban planning and density here in San Diego and in cities across the country. Joining me is Jennifer Burney, co-author of the paper on heat in poor and minority communities in U.S. cities. She's an environmental scientist and associate professor at UC San Diego. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. How significant was the temperature difference between wealthier white neighborhoods and lower income minority neighborhoods that you observed in your study? Yeah, so um, this can be uh, up to uh, a degree or two Celsius between different types of neighborhoods. And again, cities tend to be on average, uh, warmer than their more rural surroundings. Um, One thing I'll say is that even in cities that are cooler than their surroundings, um, that happens in more desert areas, and San Diego is actually a place that's a little bit cooler in our city than uh, the surroundings, but even in cities with sort of urban cooling, those um, lower income and minority neighborhoods actually have less cooling than the wealthier, uh, whiter neighborhoods. And what are the reasons for that? What kinds of things cause these differences in temperature? Yeah. So at a very physical level, it's the structure of cities. So so how we transform the surface of the earth when we urbanize uh, actually changes the energy balance, uh, you know, what happens to sunlight as it, as it comes in and, and hits the surface of the earth. So we see, for example, if you have less vegetation, such as, you know, if you sort of clear native habitat to to build a development. Um, That vegetation provides cooling through evaporation of water, evapotranspiration of water. And so, uh, you know, if you lose the vegetative cooling, that can contribute to warming. Um, If you have really high density buildings that trap heat, that's another factor. Uh, Depending on kind of the color, the reflectivity of the city, the materials that are used, those also affect this energy balance, um, as does just the density of people. Uh, and sort of heat produced by people in their activities. So uh, those are the main factors, but that's not, I don't think that's really your question. That's kind of the physical story. The, you know, the sort of how did this happen question, I I think is really one about how urban policy and planning has proceeded across our country. So do we view um, access to green space as a luxury or is it something that everyone should have access to? Um, These kinds of decisions about sort of who has access to what spaces Um, It's kind of some total of urban policy. What areas within San Diego County stood out to you in terms of these temperature disparities? Yeah, so we see higher urban heating in San Diego County in areas like La Mesa, Rolando Park, El Cajon, Tierra Santa, um, Kearney Mesa. Even thinking more coastally, National City, you know, warmer than other similar coastal areas. And so can people look up? 
how their area compares to those around them? Yes, they can. So we have built uh, an app that is accessible to anyone um, with a web browser and an internet connection, and they can look up um, any city in the U.S. and really their neighborhood, their, their census tract. Um, within uh, within a city and see how it compares to um, surrounding areas within the county and, and nationally. So does being exposed to higher temperatures have consequences like in school or work? So we know that humans in general uh, respond pretty poorly to, to heat exposure. It's true that we can adapt to some extent, but high temperatures are really dangerous, uh, particularly for the traditionally vulnerable populations, kids, elderly. And so, yeah, access to this kind of excess urban heating can be really dangerous from a, from a health perspective. Like we always think about this during heat waves, right? When this is kind of amplified, but this is also a slow moving phenomenon. So there's a direct kind of health impact, but there also are less obvious productivity impacts So we know that high temperatures are associated with, for example, children doing less well on exams in school or with workers uh, having lower productivity in a bunch of different ways that um, scholars have kind of recently been able to really measure. It's something we all feel, right, less productive when it's hot, but but it's really true and it matters for the economy of the city. What can cities do to lessen these differences? I think the two big levers on the system are vegetation and sort of building structure and and how buildings are able to sort of trap or or not trap heat. Um, So uh, on the vegetation side, really, I think thinking about vegetation as a cooling tool and and making sure that we build in green space really as a health, uh, almost as a health factor in our cities is one. And then really thinking about building design that allows for um, cooling both within buildings, right? Sort of not not trapping heat within buildings, but also uh, buildings that don't trap heat in city corridors and things like that. So a lot of really interesting architectural and urban planning uh, could go into how we think about our, our building structure as well. And how would you like to see the information in this study used? To me, the thing that jumped out with this study is that across all these different regions that have very different histories and very different geographies, you see this very persistent effect, right? So in particular, that low-income communities and um, Black, Hispanic, and Asian communities are experiencing higher urban heating than their neighboring wealthier and, and wider communities. And so To me, that suggests really that we've built a world that is viewing kind of access to to more pleasant urban spaces as either an economic amenity or um, an exclusive amenity. And and I, I, I do think that the study points to the need for a real rethink about how we're building our cities and and how that structure could serve everybody more equitably. I've been speaking with Jennifer Burney, co-author of the paper on heat in poor and minority communities in U.S. cities. She's an environmental scientist and associate professor at UC San Diego. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. Among veterans, homelessness is a problem with many causes, and so far, few solutions. But in Kansas City, one organization is replacing the traditional shelter model with tiny homes. 
and it's an idea that's spreading across the country. Chris Haxel reports for the American Homefront Project. Christopher Perry served eight years in the Marine Corps. He saw combat in Iraq and got promoted a few times, but he struggled with what he later learned was PTSD and began abusing drugs and alcohol. First, he lost his rank, and then his livelihood, kicked out with an other-than-honorable discharge. When I got out of the military, I just, you know, I, I started losing all my house, my cars, um, you know, st- stopped being able to visit with my kids. You know, I, I lost everything. He describes the next 10 years of his life in four succinct words. Prison, drugs, homelessness, alcohol. But about a year ago, he found a place called the Veterans Community Project. It's a nonprofit that has built a village for homeless veterans. Literally, there are 49 tiny homes laid out like a miniature suburban neighborhood, each one about the size of a typical hotel room. So this house is just finished getting getting repaired from a guy moving out and uh, has been staged for a vet to move in next week. Wes Williams is the director of veteran services here. As you'll see, every one of these is fully stocked with plates and, and, and cups and silverware. And um, we'll have about two weeks of groceries when they move in. Um, and this is no shelter. The towels and bedding are brand new and they belong to the resident forever. The independence and not sharing a room with, with five or six or 50 people um, really adds to that security and that, that peace of mind and knowing that like, when I'm here, I'm safe. Williams says the idea is to give residents a sense of ownership and dignity. But as a combat veteran himself, he knows many of the residents have experienced trauma. So the homes are designed from the ground up with security in mind. There's one way in and one way out, and the bed is here in the back corner, and that's, that's designed so if, if they're laying down here in their bed, they don't have to worry about somebody sneaking up behind them. The village also has a community center, and there are plans to build a campus to house other veteran service organizations, a sort of one-stop shop for veterans who may lack reliable transportation. Other cities have taken note. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, planning director Jason Bieber saw Veterans Community Project as a model when that city started thinking about where to house its homeless vets. They reached out and ended up becoming partners. I mean, I think it was always in our back of our mind as being the, the dream to partner with them and do one of their villages up here. Uh, but, you know, never thought that that maybe would, would necessarily be a reality. They've identified a plot of land and hope to break ground soon. Back in Kansas City, Marine Corps veteran Christopher Perry is getting his life back together. He's enrolled in community college and plans to move out soon. Eventually, he wants to get licensed as a truck driver. This is an amazing feeling, man. Uh, when when the, all those little tiny burdens are lifted off your shoulders, it really puts your head in a, a space, man, where you, you can actually move forward instead of wor- worrying about you know, where, you're, where you're not going to go, what's behind you. In addition to Sioux Falls, Veterans Community Project has tiny villages planned in St. Louis and Longmont, Colorado. Williams says the group wants villages in eight cities by the end of next year. I'm Chris Haxel in Kansas City. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
There's an epidemic of childhood and adolescent obesity in this country, with 17% of children presenting. That number is much higher for Latinx children, with nearly 26% of them struggling with obesity. A new study is looking at how childhood trauma could be the culprit. It's called the California Initiative to Advance Precision Medicine Study at UC San Diego. Dr. Gary Firestein, the senior principal investigator on the project, and Blanca Melendrez, a co-principal investigator are joining us. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you. Gary, I'll start with you. The childhood trauma you are looking at in this study is what you're calling adverse childhood experiences. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes. So um, during childhood, there are a variety of stresses that uh, children can experience. And one of the things that we've learned is that these early experiences can have long-term consequences for health, whether it's related to hunger, abuse, exposure to to, uh, individuals who are taking drugs or any of a variety of other types of uh, exposures. And the surprising uh, aspect of this is how long-term the consequences can be. And our goal is to try to intervene and prevent some of those long-term consequences. And Blanca, what causes these adverse childhood experiences? Yes, um, like Gary mentioned, um, adverse childhood experiences are are caused by uh, abuse, incarceration of a parent, unstable living environments, and emotional detachments from caretakers. So this is really um, uh, expansive uh, traumatic events in the life of the child. And there is a link between childhood trauma that lead to chronic illnesses. In this case, we're looking at toxic stress and how these type of adverse experiences um, release an overabundance of stress hormones and how that impacts um, the health and well-being of our kids and our communities. So really this study is, is transforming the way we view, we talk, and we treat obesity. It's understanding how trauma is often the underlying cause. And in San Diego County, we historically have done an amazing job at addressing childhood obesity through the Obesity Initiative and many, many other partners. But in this case, we're looking at root causes and how trauma and chronic stress contribute to the obesity problem. And I want to dig into those root causes more, Blanca. I mean, why are so many Latino or Latinx children experiencing these adverse childhood experiences? Well, part of the the way that we're looking at addressing obesity, it's looking at racial inequities um, and health disparities. And we know the statistics that, um, you know, 33% of our communities are overweight or obese. One out of three children are overweight or obese. And there's always health disparities among children and families with racial, ethnic, and economic uh, backgrounds. So these inequities um, are seen in our Latino students, for instance, 43% of them uh, were in Hispanic students um, in a study were overweight compared to white students with an overweight of, um, of 24%. So we um, have not really addressed the root causes of these health diseases, in this case, obesity. Um, so we're looking at children with toxic, toxic stress um, and how they live their lives in, in a constant state of fight and flight mode. So many times our, our kids that are suffering from the greatest health disparities are going through a series of traumas and they respond to the world from a place of constant danger and their brains are overloaded with um, these stress hormones that um, 
are unable to function appropriately. So that's when we start seeing that many of our students fall behind. Um, they can't focus in school. Um, they have issues with uh, relationships with, with their peers. Um, and with this, you know, we start seeing certain behaviors. You know, we, they turn to food or alcohol or tobacco or other things, and though they don't regard these coping methods as problems. Um, they see them as a way to obtain relief from these stressors. So that's what we're looking in this study. Um, you know, that obesity is not necessarily perceived as a problem, but a solution to toxic stress. Uh, and this question is, is for the both of you. While the, the money you received will go to help address the health problems caused by these adverse childhood experiences, talk to me about how important it is to not only address the symptoms, but to really get to the cause of these problems. There are a variety of challenges to understanding and studying and determining these root causes. There's a history, a long history of trust issues uh, amongst the underserved, um, both uh, for access to healthcare, but particularly uh, research. Uh, oftentimes there is uh, a reluctance to participate. And so it makes it extremely difficult to try to uh, study the root causes and then develop um, answers and treatments that would be specific for individual populations. So one of the ways that we are trying to address this is by having a very robust community engagement component to this in order to begin to develop trust with the community uh, and develop the interventions in collaboration with, uh, with the community. In this way, the, the families, the participants and the community are our partners. And, and I, I also want to just go back to your, your question in relation to health. I do want to say that, you know, studies have demonstrated that high doses of adverse childhood experiences affects directly the brain development, the immune system, the hormonal system, and the way our DNA is read and transcribed. So individuals exposed to high doses of adverse childhood experiences and stress triple their lifetime risk of heart disease and lung cancer, and there's a 20-year difference in life expectancy. Do you think that systemic racism could be a cause of, of so much of this childhood trauma? Definitely. Um, as part of the Childhood Obesity Initiative, we have made a commitment to look at obesity from an equity ratio lens. Uh, we know that uh, we have not necessarily look at structural racism, and how racism impacts our health and well-being. And there's definitely multiple studies um, and multiple efforts across the country and in San Diego County to address racism in the health system and uh, the academic system and in the government institution holistically. So this is why we are super excited about this approach because this is a community academic partnership um, in collaboration with the Latino community and our promotoras and resident leaders are going to be sharing with us what their lived experience looks like. What are the social determinants of health that are impacting their health and well-being? We have some data set strategies to use technology so that the community could be uploading in real time their lived experience. And that data set is going to be used to inform our interventions. So I am sure that racism um, and health disparities are at the top of that list. And, and Gary, as you all research this, how will your interventions be implemented within communities? The interventions and the treatments uh, will be provided by the community themse communities themselves, particularly promotoras uh, and the
the community clinics. This is not an example of where academic uh, researchers are going to uh, move into and into the community clinics and provide the care. This is a partnership where the community clinics uh, and the community itself will be taking the lead. Uh, so uh, um, it will really be the, the communities and the clinics themselves that will be providing the um, interventions that have been co-developed in collaboration uh, with various agencies and community groups. I've been speaking with Blanca Melindres and Dr. Gary Firestein, principal investigators on the California Initiative to Advance Precision Medicine. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. As Major League Baseball fans gather in Denver today ahead of the league's all-star game, one player is drawing the attention of fans and commentators alike. Shohei Otani has been selected as the American League's starting pitcher, a feat made even more impressive given that he also leads the MLB in home runs. The two-way athlete from Japan is having a breakout year and is quickly solidifying himself as one of the greatest spectacles in professional sports today. Joining us with more on Otani's historic year is Jay Paris, a San Diego sports writer and author of the book, Shohei Otani, The Amazing Story of Baseball's Two-Way Japanese Superstar. Jay, welcome back to the program. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. Always nice to be here. Absolutely. So you originally wrote this book back in 2019 when Otani was an emerging star. How has his standing in the league changed since then? Um, you know, <laughs> He was a big star in Japan, and he came over here in 2018 and, and was the American League Rookie of the Year, had a pretty good year, uh, but he got hurt and uh, his, uh, wasn't able to pitch as much as he wanted to. Now we're seeing a, a fit Shohei Otani. Uh, this is what he did in Japan maybe back in 2016 or so when he led the Japanese League in every category and, and took the ham fighters to to their World Series. So, you know, you look at him and, and if you uh, saw Shohei play before and you knew of his capabilities and his upsides, you would be amazed and stunned, but you really wouldn't be surprised. But the people are seeing him now for the first time. And, and like I said, he's been healthy. So he's been hitting a lot, been pitching a lot, uh, been in the mix of things. Other people are seeing him and, and he blows them away. I mean, uh, the All-Star game on Tuesday night, Shohei belongs on Saturday morning cartoons. That's the kind of character he is. He throws the ball 100 miles an hour. He hits the ball 450 feet. He's among the fastest players in the league. So you put this all together, and he's not a baseball player. He's a cartoon superhero, if you will. I mean, and I guess that speaks to why he's currently the subject of so much fascination within the sport. I mean, tell me some more about that. Well, I think it's also his global effect, Jade. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to uh, gauge or to overstate how popular baseball is in Japan and how popular Shohei Otani is. Remember, Shohei was a star in high school. He threw the ball 100 miles an hour when he was in high school, and the high school baseball tournament in Japan is on the level to maybe the, the final four of men's basketball here at the collegiate level. I mean, it's a nationwide big deal. And Shohei told everybody, 
I'm playing in high school and I'm going straight to the majors. Well, the ham fighters drafted him, talked him into staying in Japan. And when he decided to stay in Japan and work on his craft at the very fine level at the Nippon Baseball League, I mean, his popularity grew even more because he stayed home. He stayed, stayed in Japan. So when he did decide the time was right to go to the majors to try this unprecedented feat of pitching and hitting at the highest level in the highest league, when he left Japan, he left with the nation on his back. Everybody roots for Shohei. They stay up till two or three in the morning to watch his starts. If they have a survey with grandfathers asking who would they like their grandson to be, it's Shohei. If they ask mom who would they like to see their daughter marry, it's Shohei. If it's a big brother asking who would like their little brother to be, it's Shohei. It's just unbelievable the popularity, and that bears itself out if you're able to go to Angel Games, especially in Anaheim, where the Japanese contingent and the the fans are, are on a different level. A game when Shohei pitches is more of a party than a baseball game. And, you know, for people who are just really unfamiliar with the sport, can you explain why Otani is such a phenomenon in baseball right now? It'd be like you starting your broadcasting career and right off the bat, they compared you to Barbara Walters. It'd be like being a painter being compared to Michelangelo. I mean, this guy is being compared to one player and one player over only, and that's Babe Ruth. Even people that aren't uh, up on baseball or, or consider themselves a seam head that follow every, every pitch, everyone, practically everyone knows Babe Ruth. This is who he's being compared to. These are the, um, the accomplishments, the feats that he's surpassing Babe Ruth. I mean, we're talking 1919. <laughs> That's a long time ago. This, he, he's matching something that hasn't been done in almost over a century. So I, I think it speaks to the significance of what he's doing but also the significance of how rare it is. I mean, I don't know if he's going to be able to do this for five years. He may get hurt tomorrow, but this is one of the most historic baseball seasons ever in the game of baseball in major league history. So, you know, enjoy it right now. Will it last? Nobody can tell you, but what this man is doing is absolutely amazing. How rare is it for a player like Otani to come along? More and more as the game evolved, as the game grew, uh, it grew into specialization. You were a hitter or you were a pitcher, you know, except when you were a kid. You know, when you pick teams in, in Sandlot or in Little League, very often the shortstop or the best hitter on the team is also the best thrower, the best pitcher on the team. So in the youth level, uh, you know, Little League, Pony League, high school, if you will, you know, you can pitch and hit. But the competition is so keen in a game which is built around failure. Remember the great Tony Gwynn. He failed seven out of 10 times. They built a statue of him. That illustrates how difficult this game is. So for to, to be a player and to convince management, to convince coaches, convince teammates, hey, I'm going to hit and pitch at the major league level. They look at you like you have a screw loose. No way. It, it's so hard just to excel in one disciple of baseball that to try to do it, pitch and hit is unheard of. You know, in addition to starting the pitching off for today's game, he also participated in yesterday's home run derby. When is the last time something like that has happened? Uh, I think the year was 19 never. <laughs> Nobody's never had done the home run derby. 
uh, pitched and, and was the leadoff batter. And it's not surprising his his uh, production in that home run derby. He was with the Angels, played in, the, in Colorado a couple of years ago in interleague play, and and he was hitting the ball up in the the triple deck up up where nobody's ever hit it before. So the combination of his raw power with the baseballs flying at uh, mile high elevation, he's really made for the home run derby, and that's why it's so much fun as he's in it. You know, has Otani's success here in the major leagues boosted the popularity of American baseball back in his home country of Japan, or in particular, the the popularity of the Angels? Uh, absolutely. And you see it at Angel Stadium. You see it really where Shohei plays. Nowhere, no matter where Shohei plays in Major League Baseball, a strong Asian contingent of fans show up. Now, were they fans before Shohei got here? Maybe. <laughs> but I don't know. It certainly seems like there's a lot more fans with signs and blowing horns and and uh, people wanting to, to meet them. But I think Japan, it's, it's hard to overstate how popular baseball is in Japan. And for them, that's that's like their number one sport, as is, is hard as it is to believe. For them to have the number one player in their number one sport and, and the significance of a Japanese man doing it, you know, in the U.S. and everybody just swelling up with that pride in Japan. Uh, it's increased the popularity for sure. And I think you, you asked mentioned the marketing angle, too. There's a lot more uh, Japanese advertisements, a lot more advertisements for Japanese products at Angel Stadium and, and on radio and TV. So so that reach, that umbrella, what Shohei has brought to America, uh, just continues to grow. I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Jay, it's always nice to speak with you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota. Let's go places.